we can't be gender blind or gender neutral when it comes to the way in which we deal with the people in our organisation. Equality is not about treating people the same. It's about ensuring that everybody has equal access to opportunities and resources and power and control, regardless of their gender and regardless of their diversity. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is Jenny Whitwer, who's a veteran of over 37 years service in the Royal Australian Navy and Australian Defence Force. While her career started in maritime logistics, a change in direction later in her career saw Jenny emerge as a well-respected strategic human resource specialist. Key appointments included Navy Strategic Women's Advisor, large-scale cultural and workplace reform, and leading the implementation of the United Nations Women, Peace and Security Agenda for the Australian Defence Force and the broader defence and national security sector. An operational deployment in 2013 placed Jenny as the first Australian Defence Force Gender Advisor for NATO operations in Afghanistan. In her last Australian Defence Force role, Jenny was seconded to UN Women in New York as a policy specialist on peacekeeping and sexual exploitation and abuse. Since leaving full-time service, Jenny has been contracted to UN Women for work in Ukraine as well as Jordan. She's an international consultant, author and speaker on gender, women, peace and security. She's written extensively on those subjects and published her own first book, Against the Wind, How Women Can Be Their Authentic Selves in Male-Dominated Professions in 2020. Jenny's a lifelong learner, currently studying a Master's of International Development at the University of Canberra, as well as being a non-executive director on a number of boards and organisations, including being the chair of Women's Veterans Australia, What I loved about our conversation, it was raw and frank about some of those issues. Her grit and determination to break through and to call out inequity and her personal journey against the wind as a woman in a male-dominated environment. Let's get right into the conversation. So, Jenny Whitworth, welcome to the Frontline Boardroom Podcast. Thank you, Martin. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, look, great to have you on the show. We've known each other for a long time. But my first question always is, how did you end up joining, in your case, the Royal Australian Navy a few years ago? A few years ago. I have to say 41 years ago (laughs) today, Martin. A long time. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, look, back then, I think when women were finishing school, you know, there was a very limited choice of careers. Generally, it was sort of banking or secretarial work or nursing. And, in fact, I did actually start a nursing career at Cooma Hospital in January of 1981. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'd also applied for the Navy and the New South Wales Police. Both uniformed services, or even nursing, of course, is uniformed. And I think that coming from a girls' high school where where I had to wear, you know, hats and gloves and stockings, that it wasn't too much of a stretch to join a uniformed service where you still wore hats and gloves and stockings. So I think that as a teenager that I was always going into some sort of career that was uniformed. And Mm. also both my parents had been in the Royal Australian Air Force. My father had been a pilot. Mm. Unfortunately, he was killed in a flying accident 
when my mother was pregnant with me. So I didn't grow up in an Air Force family. My mother had been a clerk in the Air Force and, of course, had to leave when she got married. I didn't grow up in a service home, but, you know, our home was filled with stories about my parents' time in the Air Force. So I think it was a combination of those, you know, those couple of elements that really inspired me to think about a career in the in the military. Yeah. So what were the... What were those early leadership influences, whether they were before joining or maybe even in your early career? Service influences? Just probably, as I said, my parents. Yeah. Or just leadership influences, full stop? Oh, my leadership influences, yeah. Look, I recall my English teacher at high school, Mrs Agnew. She was a fantastic, very inspiring, well-educated woman from South Africa. She was a white South African. And she really inspired in me a love for Nelson Mandela and Dr. Martin Luther King mm. and what they stood for. And, you know, also the tragedy and the heartbreak behind South Africa's apartheid regime and also the racism that existed and still exists in the US. And I think that's really what inspired me to go into a career or, you know, have a desire to actually help others. And I think that's where that came from. Yeah. I also did learn some valuable lessons from my stepfather, who was a journalist, mm-hmm. a very smart, educated man who married my mother when I was about five. I think that he struggled a little bit marrying a woman back in the 60s with a couple of young children. But I think, but to my sister and I, he was very fair. He was very smart. He was a very considered man, very measured mm. and very consistent. And he would always give us a second chance and preferred to use sort of reasoning and intellect to deal with some of the teenage issues that arose rather than other ways to express maybe his anger or disappointment, which I think may have been common in the 60s and 70s. So I think those two were very influential. Mm. Yeah. How wonderful to have such great role models as a young child growing up. Absolutely. Look, you know, high school, of course, is such a shaping and influencing environment and as is the home as well too. So to have parents that mm. encouraged education and encouraged stretching myself and encouraged me into a military career at a time when, you know, there were very few women entering those professions. Yeah. And you joined at a time where there were very few women in the Navy and I guess sort of in some ways you were, were breaking the ice in terms of women having full careers. What was that like? It was a very difficult time, Martin. You and I knew each other both at the Naval College and I found that quite confrontational, to be honest. Mm. I didn't know that there were so few women in the Navy at that time. I wasn't prepared for what I experienced. It was very, very much a male-dominated profession. I think around that time women comprised about 7% of the workforce. Most women officers knew each other by name, again, because there were so few. And I found that in logistics, in the branch that I joined, that there were actually little to no female role models, you know, that I could aspire to. So I sort of found myself in an environment where there was variations on leadership, but it tended to be a very strong, homogenous male approach to leadership. Understandably, you know, the military was, you know, was created by men for men, and that was the organisation in which women were added to and expected to conform Hmm. And I found that very challenging. Yeah, so it, as I reflect on that, it must have been, as you say, challenging. And, and I don't think actually the men at the time actually thought much about it. They just assumed that you would make your way, get on with it. Hmm. But the reality is that it was much tougher than that. And I can think about that environment, that even in Naval College, where you know it was over 100 young men and just eight 
young women who had joined to further their career in the Navy. And, you know, I'm not sure that that experiment was perhaps as uh, solid as perhaps it could have been. No, well, in fact, in the international development space that I work in now, we actually refer to that as add women and stir because it's very much a practice in which you think that creating gender equality or creating an environment where you're bringing the diversity of genders and others into an organisation that you just add women and stir. And, you know, the research shows that that really doesn't work very well, not in terms of wanting to make, you know, very inclusive organisations. It has to be more than that. And that's what we found, that women, you know, really had to conform to these very masculine, this very masculine environment, very masculine leadership, that they were the only role models that we had to look to. And to be honest, and you know me very well, hmm. I struggled at times to fit into that that kind of that homogenous leadership model in which men were the only, primarily the only examples that I had to look to. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's a good lesson for today, isn't it, to think about how to be deliberate about how we create that leadership environment in our organisations and I can't remember the details and you and I probably know the same study that was done into what are the, the masculine and feminine traits of leadership and and actually the results of that study showed that actually there are more feminine traits of leadership than masculine that actually people appreciate in the workplace. Well, actually, interestingly, um, some of the research that's come out of, you know, looking at leadership through the COVID period showed that there were a number of traits that emerged that all leaders exhibited, which included the use of technology and trust and so on. And so the good leaders who were doing, you know, making decisive, you know, making strong decisions about the pandemic very early on exhibited those traits. But there was one trait that actually separated women out from the men, and that was care and compassion. And I think that we saw Jacinda Ardern show that in her leadership style, where she showed a lot of empathy Mm. for the people of New Zealand you would recall those Facebook Q&A sessions she'd have wearing her sweats and talking about putting her baby to bed. Well, that was about showing that she was one of, you know, her people, that she understood that everybody was going through the same thing regardless of, you know, who they were and what they did in life. And that was the distinction between Mm. women and men leaders. Yeah, yeah. Your career had you starting off as a logistics officer and A couple of real opportunities, I think, from reading your bio, which included sort of going to see as just one of, was it two women in one ship to be the supplier? Yeah, it was back in 1996. Mm -hmm. And this was only, you know, two or three years after the Navy was starting to put women on uh, ships once they, the government had removed the gender restrictions on women serving in non-combat related roles. And so along with another classmate of mine, we were the first two women logistics officers to serve at sea as the head of the logistics department, despite the fact that we'd not had a seagoing career before then and not had the opportunities that our male colleagues had had to build their experience and skills at sea. So that was very challenging Mm. and often very complex environments. And the ship that I served on was a Mm. Vietnam War era destroyer escort that really was not built to have, you know, more than men on board. So there were issues around the infrastructure and the logistics of having women on board. So in fact, you would recall that there was a time where this particular ship had had quite a number of women on board and there'd been a number of issues that arose from that. So they actually then stepped back from that. And at the time that I did Mm. go to sea as a supplier, so I was one of two women and the only female head of department. Mm. 
And in that environment, did you find that there was some experience of leadership that, you know, you go, what, that was, that was a defining moment? It's when you understood what good leadership was like or was it something around your own style of leadership that you'd adopted to make it work for you? I think my earliest sort of experience with showing the kind of leadership that I wanted to exhibit was when I was a young sub-lieutenant at mm. actually at the Naval College when I'd returned to work there and I had a young steward working for me. And it was a, a situation where he was not performing well. I was required to counsel him on his performance, talk about the consequences of not improving his performance. And he sat there and he just burst into tears. And he was a young man about the same age as me. And of course, you know, we were all victims of the environment at that time. And it, it was quite confrontational to have a young man sitting in front of me uh, crying. And I had to sort of think, well, you know, not because I'm a woman, but because I'm a person, there's obviously a story here. Mm. And there wasn't really a big story. He wanted to transfer to clearance diver, but there were no vacancies at the time. He wasn't very happy being a steward, but it was either a matter of him staying and working as a steward or leaving the Navy altogether. And so we talked it through and we were able to offer him an opportunity to become the commanding officer's valet. And he took that opportunity and he excelled. He ended up, you know, being awarded a CO's commendation for his work. I was really thrilled that out of that, I learned that we have to sit and listen and listen to the stories of the people that we're, you know, that we need to look after and, you know, our people that we need to look after. Hmm. There is some sort of story behind what's going on in their lives, with their emotions that they express at work. And it was a win-win, quite frankly. Hmm. He kept his job as a steward in the Navy. He did a fantastic job. We managed to keep someone in the Navy, which of course is really important for our return on investment. And I actually felt good that I had done something for this young man, as opposed to just going down the route of, you know, counselling him until such time as his performance, you know, caused us to warrant taking discharge proceedings. Mm, yeah. And so from that, I thought, this is the way I want to exhibit my leadership. So when I was on the ship as the head of department, mm. There wasn't the leadership that I expected to see from some of my colleagues. Mm. And there was one colleague in particular who was the same rank as me, another head of department, who quite frankly was very unpleasant and just a bully. And a bully to me because I was a woman and because I was a logistics officer. Mm. He was a bully to sailors. So I didn't, you know, I didn't need to take it personally. But I didn't know that at the time. And I sort of, you know, would listen to him and look at him and think, this is definitely not how I want to lead and I don't believe mm. that anybody else, you know, expressed any desire to learn to lead from this individual either. And so it was a good mm. opportunity for me to say, well, you know, that's not me. I might be a square, a, you know, square peg in a round hole, but I actually want to care, show that I care about my sailors. Yes. And I felt that I didn't see that in him and I, th I thought it was quite disappointing coming from someone in a senior position to be demonstrating that kind of... Yeah example of leadership. Yeah. It's a great testimony, isn't it, to the fact that at the end of the day, in our working environments, in our communities, in our home life, it's humans and humans working together, having relationship in some shape or form to achieve some kind of outcome. And actually, if we don't connect on a human to human level, it's just transactional at the end of the day. And, and you just don't get the best out of people. And as you said, your example of the steward there, I mean, he would have walked away from a career in the Navy the Navy would have lost that investment if you hadn't established that human connection. Absolutely. 
I look, I found this across not only my military career, but also my career in international development, that Mm. one of the sort of most strongest elements of leadership with other people or even leadership of yourself is those relationships that you build with people and those networks because you can't do anything without them. And I know that people say there is no I in team. There is a place and time (laughs) for leadership for self, but quite frankly, Yes. And I don't work in teams in the international development space that I work in at the moment, particularly, but it is very important to have the networks and and those connections around you Mm. that will support you when you need it, Mm. but also teach you things. And and we're never too late to learn, right, about how to lead people. Yeah. Part of your time in the Navy also included having a family. So it's, it's a different set of circumstances for women that choose to become mothers And, you know, that sort of is changing quite a bit, I guess, over time or or just being parents full stop. But what was that like? I mean, it was at a time when sort of the Navy really hadn't had that experience of seagoing women then leading to have a break in their career to have a family. Yeah, I actually did struggle the first. I've got two daughters. Um, I struggled the first time I was pregnant. I was actually the head of the logistics department at the Australian Defence Force Academy. So you could imagine I was a sort of senior mid-level officer in a place where there's a thousand young military cadets. And of course, they look to the men and women in uniform that are senior to them for leadership and for inspiration. And while I didn't work directly with cadets, although I did teach leadership courses while I was there, and I was in the logistics role and managing the transport and so on, when I got pregnant and I moved into a maternity uniform, I really struggled with this notion that I was not going to be seen as a professional naval officer, Mm. that I was actually going to be seen just as a normal woman. And I'm not going to say what elements of my environment contributed to my thinking around this, but I did find even thinking that was the case was also confrontational and challenging to me. Mm -hmm. Of course, once I had my first baby, I realised that being a parent uh, was going to be the most important role in my life Mm. and setting an example to my children as they grew up, which I believe that I did and I set set that example well, was more important to me than any job or any career that I could have. But it was also important to me for them to see that I loved my career, that I loved what it gave me, Mm. that I loved what I could contribute to it. And so they're all the sorts of examples that, of course, you want to teach your children so that you bring up strong, independent, resilient young adults, which I feel that I've achieved. But I always put them first. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I had my second child, I was, I was very comfortable with the idea that I needed to put them first and make sacrifices. So I did actually mm. leave the Navy after 22 years back in 2003. Mm-hmm. For a period of five years, I remained in the reserves and I continued to work actually almost a full-time workload as a reserve officer. Mm. And then I returned to full-time service in 2008 when both my children were well-established in primary school and I felt that was an opportunity to come back and, and contribute more. Mm-hmm. But as I was a single parent by that stage and the burden of care was on me. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a struggle to manage working full-time as it would for any parent working in any full-time capacity where you have to look at all the options that are available to help you manage your family and your home life and your work life. And so I'm no different from any other parent, mother or father, who is in this situation. And I did everything from, you know, 
live-in nannies to babysitters before school to after-school care, all sorts of arrangements, a bit of working from home, and all at a time when policies around flexible work arrangements were only still being developed. So I might have been a bit of a, bit, you know, sort of a, a head of the curve in that respect, but I did have wonderful male senior officers who I worked for who were prepared to give me that flexibility to manage both. Mm. And I looked to these senior officers as some of the best influences that I had in my sort of later or second career in Navy mm. as I managed to bring my children up at the same time. So it worked well for me. Mm. It doesn't always work well for others. And I know that I know women today in the military who are still struggling with this notion of mm. trying to combine children, whether they're single parents or not. Sometimes the burden still falls to the mother, unfortunately, mm. in a primary care of children. And that is the case for women's society as well. So that continues to be an issue for women taking up leadership roles within organisations. Yeah. Look, this is a space I know you're an advocate for. We'll, we'll obviously come back and talk more about that. When you were sort of sharing that sort of journey, I guess, as a mother in that environment and working out those priorities, I couldn't help but hear the fact that as leaders, when we see that there's something that's not quite right in our organisation or it's not working for people and we have a valuable member of our team, it, we, we actually do need to take a stand and and to do the things that actually help support that person make a meaningful contribution. After all, that's probably what we recruited them for or, or brought them into our organisation for. Yeah, and look, I think uh, the Australian military has come a long way in implementing policies that really support, you know, everybody, including those who might have children. And I think so that's, you know, been wonderful to see those changes. But I do feel that in many cases, while those sort of policies and, and programs and arrangements are in place, that there still seems to be more, perhaps even at the tactical level within the work environment, attitudes and beliefs that actually prevent mainly women from accessing those arrangements or those opportunities. And, you know, in my role as chair of Women Veterans Australia and also as an advocate for women veterans, I'm in a number of Facebook groups and I hear and see stories all the time where women mm. are looking for advice on how to manage a particular situation where their immediate supervisor is not supportive of arrangements mm. that would, you know, enable them to continue their careers. And so this is what you know, causes women to say, well, I can't manage it. If I can't get childcare and I can't work from home yeah. and it's only for a short time but you're not letting me do that, I'm going to have to leave. Mm. And that's not what we want, right? Yeah. We want the return on investment. We yeah. want to keep these people. Yeah. And quite frankly, you know, we, they deserve, our, you know, the ADF support in enabling them to continue their career if that's what they want to do and not be forced out of a workplace like that just because they can't in the short term, uh, fix their circumstances. Yeah. And for many, it would be a shock that that situation still exists, you know, just not understanding why we haven't fixed that, why it hasn't changed, why people are not on board. So, yeah, it, it just reminds me that, and all of us, I guess, that, that we need to be consistent and, you know, be paying attention to the issues, being having connective conversations that allow us to actually hear those issues and not to make assumptions that everything's, you know, happy in in the kingdom, so to speak. Yeah, and it, look, it just goes back to when I was talking about the young sailor who was crying in my office who, you know, he really did have a bit of a backstory as to why that was occurring, was that we all have a story 
we have to listen to our people Hmm. and we have to take that into account because we just cannot be so black and white in the way in which we manage our people. And so empathy and compassion and care Hmm. for what they're experiencing, regardless of rank Hmm. and regardless of position, Hmm. is very important. Yeah. Uh, Jen, we know it doesn't go well all the time. You know, was there a moment in your service career where you go, actually, that was the biggest lesson from my time in the service? Although I know, you know, you're still serving, but like back in that permanent career? Yeah, yeah. Look, I go back to perhaps my sea time as the head of the logistics department on the ship I was serving on and the difficulties that I had with this one particular other head of department. And I recall a particular hmm. meeting we were having one day in the wardroom in the officer's mess with the other heads of department. It was to prepare for an upcoming port visit. And, you know, I was doing my bit as the logistics officer. The engineers were doing their bit as the engineers. The executive officer was doing his bit as the executive officer. But it came to a point in the discussions about the arrangements we were making around some logistics issues in port And after I had briefed the team on what I anticipated or expected would be occurring in all respects of of logistics, this particular head of department just shouted over me, spoke down to me, told me what I was going to do, all of this in front of my peers at the head of department level. Mm. And just quietly I'm sitting there thinking in my head, I really want to say all the words I wouldn't say publicly and probably the sort of words that maybe if I had been a man, I might have just used immediately, mm. but I didn't. Yes. And I actually, uh, on reflection, after I left the meeting, I kicked myself for not saying or doing what I really wanted to say or do. But, you know, as a woman, often we're very much taught to be polite in public, mm-hmm. and that's a failing mm-hmm. of women generally that we do that. And it actually made me feel less valuable than the others on the team, quite disempowered. I felt that I didn't have the Mm. agency to respond in the way that I really wanted to. Mm. And I realised that that wasn't necessarily a systemic failure of my organisation, although he was a product of his leadership development and his experience in Navy. Mm. But I felt it was a leadership failure on his part. Mm. But what I did learn out of that, firstly, was not to take it personally because He did treat others like that Mm. and not to take it again, to not take that behaviour again Mm. and to be stronger, you know, more confident in my experience, my abilities and my skills so that if it did arise again that I would actually take stronger action at the point in time Mm. to say that that was not acceptable Mm. behaviour and was not acceptable leadership. Mm. And I, I still see that in my mind as the sort of the pivotal moment in my career journey, which was at about the 16-year mark for me, where I thought this is definitely not the sort of leadership that I want to exhibit and this is not the way I want to be remembered Mm. as someone who wants to make an impact and a contribution. Mm. This is not the way to do it. So in my mind, that is the one, I guess, one of the biggest lessons I learned was to to stand up for myself. Mm. When you came back to full-time service in that reserve capacity after the girls are born and they're well-established at school. Your career took a kind of a right-hand turn away from logistics, didn't it, and and took you into some other areas. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience of the things you did and that, of course, some of that has led you to where you are today? Of course. Well, actually, my last full-time role before I transferred to the reserves was into an 
and inaugural position as the Director of Navy Organisational Culture. And this was sort of really the start of Navy's journey on cultural reform. At the time, the Chief of Navy wanted to examine Navy's values, its mission. You know, there was a lot of media attention given to poor behaviour by our sailors overseas, and that continued uh, still through, you know, the 90s and into the early 2000s. And so that was a great opportunity. I was a team of one, but that actually then became almost the way in which my career continued for the the next sort of 15 years after that. So I did that role, went to the reserves for five years, and I came back into that role again. I don't know if nobody else wanted to do it, but I was very happy to move back into that space because I could see that Navy really wanted to make some change and they needed some help in you know, driving that change and at least creating the platform from which emanated, as you know, New Generation Navy, which has been Navy's uh, flagship cultural reform program. So in 2008, when I was back in that role, I was uh, working for a a wonderful Deputy Chief of Navy, and that then also became the sort of the standard uh, leader that I was working for for the remaining years of my full-time service, who really wanted to see, you know, Navy take some change. So we were doing some work around women's uh, leadership development, leadership opportunities, representation, because he could see, and this is pre-Elizabeth Broderick's review into the treatment of women in the ADF, which was 2012, Mm. but he could see that there was a need for us to do something about the level of women's representation in Navy and particularly in roles in which had been opened up to women since the early 1990s. From that, you know, I moved into the new generation Navy cultural program team. It was quite natural to take my position and move that into there. And I was responsible sort of for the cultural pillar of that program And again, as part of that, the Deputy Chief of Navy encouraged me to look at how we could sort of further the participation and representation of women. That sort of led into some work we did around developing a women's leadership strategy, Mm. a women's mentoring program, a women's leadership program. And as a result of that, the then Deputy Chief of Navy decided that there was so much work we needed to do around the, within the women's space that I would step out of NGN team and into another new position that was created to provide strategic advice to our senior leadership Mm. on women's participation and representation. And so in that role, I had an opportunity to work overseas with the NATO Committee on Gender Perspective, and I attended as Navy's, as as the ADS representative for quite a number of years, actually. Mm. And that opened up to me a whole new world around, you know, women's roles and participation in in all peace and security efforts, not just on the domestic front at home, but actually how women were being used in peacekeeping missions, what their roles were, what the benefits were to peacekeeping missions, to having women on the teams. And this was a sort of a kind of a niche field that not only Australia, but the international community and the militaries and police and other security agencies were grasping with through the 2000s, uh, early 2000s and on. So again, within that role, an opportunity came up to deploy to Afghanistan as the first ADF gender advisor to NATO operations. And I left for that deployment in January 2013. But I got that role because of the work that I've been doing as the strategic advisor, because of my connections to the NATO Committee on Gender Perspective, Mm. and because I was the only one who at that time really had much knowledge and understanding around 
women's roles in peace and security efforts. Mm. So I deployed to Afghanistan. I was there for seven months, and I recall that we were there at the same time and worked together on International Women's Day, which was wonderful. Mm. And while I was there, back home in Australia, the Chief of Defence Force was working to establish a position for me to return to, promoted to temporary captain to undertake that role, to lead the implementation of the Australian Government National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, which was just furthering the work that Australia needed to do to integrate gender perspective into our peace and security efforts, which included looking at the way in which women were deployed in the roles that they were deployed into and how they could contribute in the peace and security space as well. Mm. And so I did that role for three years, which again sort of, you know, enabled me to connect with my international colleagues, you know, working in various countries around the world, contributing to lots of forums on women, peace and security and gender in militaries, gender equality in militaries, gender perspective in militaries. And arising out of that role was a secondment to UN Women in New York as a military policy specialist on peacekeeping and sexual exploitation and abuse. So I went off to do that secondment in 2016. Mm. Within that role, essentially as a civilian in the team, but still an ADF member, I was there to support UN Women's efforts on gender equality in armed forces in other countries. And so I mm. worked in the Ukraine, worked in the United Arab Emirates, and attended forums in, in lots of other countries around the world, contributing to the UN's implementation of their gender equality policies in peacekeeping. Mm. And it was really from the work that I'd been doing in this gender space from way back in 2008, but through to the international work that I was contributing to, mm. that led me to make the decision on my return to Australia in 2018 to move from full-time service into reserve service. I felt that I had undertaken and I had undertaken the most senior role in this space in the ADF. Mm. It was time for me to made the decision to be able to continue to work in this space with my international colleagues to still contribute to the development of armed forces in terms of women's participation and representation. Mm. The best way to do that was as a consultant. Mm. And I pretty much finished full-time service on a Friday and I started my first contract with the UN on the Monday working with mm. my colleagues in the Ukraine. Yeah. It's been a lot going on in that space and you can't help but the situation in Ukraine now, right? that that actually would be a really important issue and, of course, and a great challenge, I guess, for the Ukrainian people in terms of that probably not being here to by their adversary in that sort of circumstances. What are the top things that we need to think about in that gender, peace and security space? And, you know, it's very clear why it's important, but what are the, what are the two or three things that organisations and the military needs to continue to focus on? Well, firstly, that... I would really like to see people stop pushing back on all the, you know, the gender equality work that's been undertaken. Mm. It's not a matter of political correctness to do this. It's actually an operational imperative. Yeah. And it, it's not just yeah. about the two genders. It is about all genders. Yeah. It's about all diversity. We are a much more effective team or organisation if we embrace the diversity that we can have within our organisations. And it's not just about diversity based on age, ethnicity, you know, 
gender identity, but also perspectives and, you know, where we come from and our upbringings and our experiences. And they're they're all very important and they all contribute. So I think we need to understand that we're not there yet. Until we have very good representation, particularly in regard to gender and good, you know, representation within our senior leadership, we're not there yet. So we do need to continue to focus on, you know, implementing changes or special measures similar to those that arose initially out of Broderick Review, which is not about affirmative action and it's not about disadvantaging men in any way, shape or form, but we have to understand that our organisation needs to become more adaptive to that diversity within our society and no more of the add women and stir approach, but actually think about how does the organisation embrace that diversity and use it to its fullest extent. operational effectiveness Mm. so we have to think about gender perspective in operations and and i've seen a lot of media that has you know made a lot of fun out of this issue they don't understand the rigor of the academics and the practitioner experiences behind this necessity to have gender perspective but this is talking about you know how gender equality is applied or how we help countries in those countries, you know, those places that we deploy to, either through NATO operations or UN peacekeeping, you know, how is gender equality enhanced for women and girls in those countries? Um, Generally, they're the most vulnerable, they're the most affected by conflict. And when we come there as a coalition force, as a peacekeeping force or as a coalition force in NATO operations, part of our mandate is to interpret and apply gender equality policies and programs that assist Mm. women and girls in those vulnerable situations. And so we have to understand how do we do that? And all our people need to understand, well, why is gender important in those circumstances? And and that is because Mm. the needs and concerns of women and girls differ to those of men and boys. And that is a reality that is borne out by research and that is borne out by years of practitioner skills. So it's not a one-size-fits-all approach to the way in which we assist a local community in a conflict or post-conflict environment. Similarly, Mm. we have to say that we can't be gender blind or gender neutral when it comes to the way in which we deal with the people in our organisation. Equality is not about treating people the same. It's about ensuring that everybody has equal access to opportunities and resources and power and control, regardless of their gender and regardless of their diversity. So there might be, for men and women and other genders, different pathways that they need to take to get to the same thing or to get access to the same thing. So I really feel that until we start to get an understanding of that in our organisations and the support of all people in the organisation to progress an agenda based on operational effect or business organisational outcomes, whichever way you want to put it, you know, we're not going to see the advances that we need to see in, you know, the sort of the diversity and gender space, you know, in leadership. We're not going to see that for a very long time. Mm. So we have to start thinking this is a necessity for us, right? Yeah. It's not political correctness. It's a necessity. Yeah. Yeah. And my sense from hearing you talk there, these are equally applicable to gender, peace and security from an operational sense in the military, but they apply equally in the corporate boardroom as well. Yeah. So the work that I do with security forces around the world, and I've been working with the Jordanians for the last two and a half years, is gender mainstreaming. And gender mainstreaming is 
about mainstreaming considerations of gender into your policies, programs and projects that you implement. Mm. It's around thinking how do we raise the number of women or how do we increase the number of women into leadership roles? How do we increase women's participation in roles that have been previously closed to them, which we experienced in, in our service careers, we've seen those changes. Mm. And so gender mainstreaming is, a, and it's also a very important policy of the UN and NATO when it comes to operations. And so gender mainstreaming doesn't belong to one person. It doesn't belong to the gender advisor, although the gender advisor might have the skills and more sort of academic rigour behind gender mainstreaming that the average peacekeeper would have. But everybody needs to understand and know what gender mainstreaming is and what it means. Mm. So everybody from the sort of the head of the mission or the commanding officer all the way down to, you know, a transport driver, because if someone is on patrol in a local village with a peacekeeping mission and comes across a situation where, you know, women need to be assisted, primarily in these cultures that, that we're deploying to, women can't speak to men and require you know, a woman on the team to be able to go and assist those women in the local community. Mm. So these are just basic kind of concepts, understanding how we interact with people, taking into account cultural considerations, human security considerations. That's in the military environment, in a peacekeeping environment, in a UN civilian peacekeeping environment as well too. So the principles of gender mainstreaming, which are is primarily the process in which you try to achieve gender equality outcomes for people, are just as relevant in, you know, the corporate world, within businesses, within any other kind of organisation. These principles don't change mm. depending on the context, perhaps the way in which they're interpreted and applied might, mm. but gender mainstreaming is there for the purposes of achieving gender equality. So they can be applied anywhere and everywhere and should be. Yeah. One of the challenges in our environment in recent years and the Me Too movement, et cetera, one of the greatest challenges seems to be in the workplace, men understanding what they should be doing and can do rather than assuming that they just need to be passive and stand back and not do anything. Have you got sort of a couple of sort of one or two points there which may be advice to men in those set of circumstances of what they should be doing in that environment? Yeah, I do. And very much the research shows that it's important to engage men in these conversations. So it's not up to women to fix women. And it's not up to women to fix gender inequality in organisations because a lot of organisations are predominantly male. It's very important to engage the men in these conversations. So they have to understand why it's important. They have to have the attitudes and beliefs and wherewithal to support the change in an organisation, but they have to honestly believe it. It's not a matter of just being compliant and ticking boxes. They really have to, you know, mm. talk the walk and walk the talk as far as I'm concerned where this mm. happens. And I, I do really want to recall the words of a colleague of ours, uh, Captain Heath Robertson, and I know he, he won't mind me citing this, but he wrote an essay for a publication for the Australian Civil Military Centre on Women, Peace and Security and his reflections on how important that agenda and sort of gender equality and gender perspective is to maritime operations where he talked about in his early years on a ship as a lieutenant commander, where, you know, the 1990s where women were, more women were being posted to ships. And, you know, the struggles that for men in having women come into what had previously been an all-male dominated environment. 
And he does say that with a bit of shame, he reflects on the fact that he watched these women try to adapt to this environment Mm. and didn't do anything to help them. And the fact was, Mm. as he got more senior and sort of had his gender epiphany, he realised that he and his colleagues should have been doing a lot more to help them fit in. And that was the one thing that he learned from that experience was that when you just add women and stir or add blank and stir, without the support and encouragement and, you know, policies in place, design, you know, by, you know, with the support of men, that those environments are not going to change and they're going to be challenging for, you know, the lesser dominant genders or the sort of the minorities within our organisation to actually adapt to and overcome. Now, we can be resilient and personally resilient, flexible and so on, and I guess that's how I survived as long as I did and I hate using that word survive, but sometimes I feel that that's been the case. And I'm sure many other women feel the same. Mm. You know, so men have to be on board because they are the dominant gender in our military as they are in every military around the world. They have to be part of the the solution to the issues that arise in the organisation. Yeah. Some of what we've talked about today you captured in your debut book, Against the Wind, how women can be their authentic selves in male-dominated professions. And what out of that is sort of, you know, what, what was the catalyst for that, writing that book? And, well, congratulations on writing the book first. So, you know, it takes an element of courage, doesn't it, to pen to paper and, and talk about those things. But what are the sort of one or two sort of key lessons that we haven't talked about that are in that book? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I'm very proud of the book. I wrote it originally a couple of years ago because I wanted to share my experiences and what I had learnt from my experiences with other women. And I had been doing that through speaking at conferences or, you know, running workshops and the sort of the multitude of work that I do. So I thought, well, why not put it into a book? And what I did was I weaved my story of my career and my sort of my experiences along with the strategies that I wanted to help women develop to enable themselves to achieve their full potential. And that's really what the book is about. Mm. It's not a fix women book at all, and it's not a book about saying that women have to change in order to fit into an organisation. For me, it was just about saying these are the things that I experienced. If this helps you not have that experience, then that's all I'm seeking to do. And so Hmm. it actually came about because very early on in my career, I, like a lot of women, had experienced a sexual assault. And it had occurred at a time when we were, there were no mechanisms in place to make complaints. There were no policies to deal with these particular issues. I was only 20 years old. I didn't know that I could report it to the civilian police. I worked in very sexist, male-dominated environments where probably I would not have been believed, where I might have been accused of, you know, or people saying it was my fault. I had done something. Maybe I drank too much the usual sorts of comments you still hear today around sexual assault. Mm. So I didn't do anything about it at the time. But I realised later that that was probably, for me, the defining point that made me realise that I want to spend my career helping other women. And I feel that I've done that in my service career and definitely still continuing to do that in my civilian career working for the UN because I'm still working, Mm. you know, with women in security organisations who are also, you know, coming across some of these very challenging and and significant issues. Mm -hmm. So that sort of, that was really the driver behind it. And I thought, well, if I can 
you know, create this book and I can help other women and it's meaningful for them and they can see from my story what I did to maybe overcome a particular issue or address it or mitigate it, then I'm, I'm helping another woman on her career pathway. Mm. So I guess some of the key messages that came out of that for me was firstly saying to women, you can be what you can't see. Because so often we hear mm. you can't be what you can't see because there's no role models. Now, that is true that, you know, I started my career with no women role models at all. And thankfully, now there are some fantastic women role models for young women. But in the event that, like I did, I spent, you know, 15 years in one role after another where I was the first person in that role and I had to create it and I could make it something, I had to do that in the absence of a role model. I had to do that, you know, based on Jen Whitworth's style of leadership and management and, and ideas. And, and I thought, well, this is an important lesson. I want to say to young women, just because you can't see mm. something that you might want to aspire to be, have enough confidence in yourself to know that you can actually do that without seeing that. And I think at some point women have to be happy to be the first person or the first woman to do something, right? Not hide behind this, oh, you know, I, yep. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want any sort of, you know, I don't want people to know that I'm the first woman to do this or stop talking about me as I'm, the, you know, if I'm the first woman to do this. But I think it's really important that we acknowledge you know, where a woman is doing the first thing. And even today, there are still lots mm. of opportunities for women to do the first thing. And so I like to say to young women, mm. don't worry if you can't see women role models, you just step up and be the best person that you can be yes. in whatever job or role or position it is that you want to be. Mm. The second message that I wanted to get across in the book was how women, you know, can overcome the feelings of being disempowered in a masculine culture by being themselves, just by being themselves. And this is where I think organisations have to be more adaptive to, you know, the type of people that are joining us today or want to join us today. They're not the same as what you and I were like when we joined or, you know, prior to that. Hmm. Society is so much more different. We're, you know, far more multicultural, for example. Lots of people from different cultures are in our country and bring with them those different perspectives. The third thing I wanted to say to young women was say yes to opportunities. Now, I spent the last 15 years of my military career saying yes. When a senior leader said to me, would you take this, I want to develop this new job, would you do it? And I said yes, because it was an opportunity for me to take something and do something with it. Now, who, you know, how often do we get those opportunities to create something new and to deliver a new capability yeah. or to, you know, to change a policy? These are all exciting opportunities that women should be, you know, stand up and say, yes, I'll take that opportunity and I'll, and I'll do with it. And as Richard Branson says, say yes to the opportunity, even if you don't know how. If you think you don't know what you're doing, yes. you'll work it out, right? Because you're yeah. with your connections and your networks and, and so on and the relationships you've got with people, you'll, you'll get the necessary knowledge and, you know, mentoring that you might need to actually undertake that role. And then the last thing, really, the most important thing was around being authentic, mm. showing authentic leadership. Now, I know that mm. there's a lot of, you know, leadership books out there and very strong leaders who talk about authentic leadership and it is such an important element of leadership. But, you know, my experience was that when, because I was authentic and, I'm, as I said, I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole, sometimes I got into trouble, sometimes I did really good things, but I was just being me and like it or leave it, quite frankly. And so we have to, I want women particularly, I mean, men, of course, should be authentic as well. But 
women in male-dominated organisations need to be prepared to be authentic and be themselves and not feel that they have to conform to that homogenous, dominant gender culture and leadership that they're working in. And I want them to break away, be different, do things differently, because then our organisation will be better for it, right? Yeah. Well, Jan, it's been fantastic. I I reckon we could talk for another couple of hours on these topics (laughs) and maybe we'll do that another time. I really just want to thank you for giving up your time today to be on the podcast. And, you know, look, there are so many lessons in all of that. And look, congratulations on all of that that you've done against the wind often, but being authentic and staying up for what you knew to be true. We're going to finish up with the rapid fire questions. If you could fill in the blank for me, as I say, rapid fire questions, not necessarily rapid fire answers. So the first question, leadership is blank. Giving people the space to talk to make their mistakes, to learn Mm -hmm. and move on and upwards. Yeah, love it. And so much of what you've done along the way, for sure. What's your go-to book on leadership besides your own? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Look, I guess there's lots of leadership books out there, but one I particularly liked reading was a book called Women Leading by Christine Nixon Mm -hmm. and Amanda Sinclair. And it's got an amazing number of stories about innovative women's leadership. And I think given what we've seen arise out of the COVID pandemic, the women's leadership that has excelled, it is important for us to learn that there is a difference between men's and women's leadership. But what can we take from both Mm. to develop our own leadership Mm. along with our sort of authentic values, how we can do the best leadership we can? So I think it's about reading stories about, you know, innovative women's leadership. Mm. Yeah, great. I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. I wish I'd known about mentoring. And, you know, when I was a young officer, mm. that I don't even know if I ever heard that word, to be honest. It wasn't a concept that existed for me until really probably I'd been in at least 25 years or so. And for me, mentoring is about just helping others get along, right? Sideways, upwards, whichever way they want to go, but helping them to be, you know, achieve their full potential. And I, while I didn't have any formal mentoring myself, As I said earlier in the interview, I had a number of senior male officers who I really feel gave me the advice I needed, you know, some guidance and so much support in order for me to do some of these roles that I did. So I include that as mentoring as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a sidebar, that's very much part of the Women's Veterans Association of Australia, isn't it, providing mentoring support there? Uh, Women Veterans Australia? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is a fledgling charity, not-for-profit charity that was created last year. One of the things that we're very keen to do is the mentoring and professional development of our women veterans. Yeah, yeah. Next question, you get a call from a team member, crisis just erupted in your company business organisation. What are your first words to that person? Tell me from your perspective what is going on. I think the first question should really be, I want to hear from you what you think is happening. Right. So that we're not sort of jumping in straight away with the solution. Hmm. And making assumptions. (laughs) Yeah, making assumptions. Yeah. And last question, the go-to quote on leadership has had the most influence on your leadership so far. Yeah. Oscar Wilde said, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Uh, Absolutely. And that's that's the premise of uh, my entire book about authentic leadership. You don't need to be anybody else. You don't need to emulate Mm. anybody else. You can take inspiration from others' leadership 
and that's important from, you know, mm. men and women's leadership that you see that you think is really good. Discard mm. what you think is not so good, mm. but be yourself. And we're not homogenous. We're not the mm. same. We don't do things the same. Be yourself. Be authentic. We'll make sure we put some links in the show notes to Women's Veterans as well as your book. But again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast today. No, thank you, Martin. It's been wonderful to you know be here and talk to you and to be able to share a little bit of my story. And I hope that, and as I hope that my legacy is uh, from my career in the ADF, but also in the international development space, that I'm helping to make a change for women. That is my mission hmm. and goal in life. So thank you for giving me the airspace to do that. Great. Well, thank you and go well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com, where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it. <laughs>